in this, the second talk, we will discuss the extinction of dukkha, the putting out of suffering, and the, the way or method of doing so. We will do this in line with the principles of Buddhism. Before going into this, we need to understand that each religion, sect, or school has its own way of eliminating dukkha. As we mentioned earlier, there is the group of religions known as creationists. And in these, these sects or schools, there is there are various ceremonies and rituals by which God's, request, God's aid is requested, where we ask for God to get rid of suffering. And then the second group of religions, those that are evolutionist, in these religions there is merely the acting or practicing in accordance with the law of nature. Each kind of religion has its own way of eliminating dukkha, and they're appropriate to themselves. Don't go and mix these up. If we start to confuse the methods of a creationist religion with the methods of an evolutionist sect, then there will arise a big mess and a great deal of difficulty. So leave things in their appropriate place. Buddhism has its own methods and means for extinguishing dukkha. Now we want to repeat once again that these methods of Buddhism have nothing whatsoever to do with old karma from past lives. In Buddhism, we don't, we don't pay any attention to such things. The dukkha is in the present, and the, the method of eliminating that dukkha is in the present. It's not a matter of old karma from past lives. Nor is it, does it have anything to do with celestial beings, supernatural powers, um, various sacred things or objects, or any kind of other superstitious beliefs of this sort. Dukkha and the elimination of dukkha do not, in Buddhism, are not concerned with old karma in previous lives or superstitious beliefs in supernatural powers. In Buddhism, there is merely the acting in accordance with itapajayata. Itapajayata is the law of cause and effect, the law of causal conditionality 
or the law of nature, which was mentioned yesterday. By acting in accordance with this law of nature in the aspect of how dukkha is extinguished, then dukkha will be extinguished. We explained yesterday how dukkha arises, but to act correctly as the law stipulates for the elimination of dukkha, then there is no more dukkha. This is all that Buddhism is concerned with, to act correctly according to the time and place, <coughs> to behave as the circumstances dictate. To put it concisely, the way to eliminate dukkha is to eliminate dhanha, craving, or foolish, ignorant desire. This means to completely eliminate, get rid of, drop, end all ignorant craving, all of these desires which arise from ignorance and stupidity. Stop having anything to do with them. Don't be associated with desires and cravings in any way. Don't even fondly look back on past experiences with craving or look forward to the possibility that these, this craving might return. Completely eliminated from the mind, all craving and all thoughts of craving. And then dukkha will not arise. The elimination or cessation of craving is the same as the elimination of the ego illusion or the self-belief, the belief in an ego, I, me, or mine. Cutting dhanha or craving cuts out the self. This is because, as we explained yesterday, it's craving which gives rise to the attachment to I and mind. Without any craving, there is no more of this attachment. And so the self-belief is also eliminated. This is the essence of, this is the, the real meaning of eliminating craving by, by extinguishing all ignorant desire, attachment to I and mind, the self, the ego is also eliminated. And if we look a bit further, we see that when the self, the ego, is eliminated, then selfishness is also extinguished. And when there is no selfishness, then none of the defilements, those dirty states of mind, such as anger, hatred, greed, fear, worry, jealousy, none of these defiled states of mind arise. By eliminating the self, there is no viewing things in terms of self, there is no looking at anything from an egocentric perspective. 
and without that selfishness, that self-orientation, then none of the defilements arise. They never mess up the mind. Let's take the time to look at this selfishness a bit and see what an ugly and disgusting, what a dangerous and fierce enemy it is. Not just for those of us sitting here, not even just for the human world, but for all the worlds, all the possible worlds and all the different kinds of beings. This selfishness, this egocentrism, we need to see. Please look carefully and see for yourself what an ugly and disgusting, what a foul and wicked enemy and villain selfishness is. First example of selfishness is that it gives rise to conflict in opposition within our own minds, within ourselves. There can be conflict without anybody else around. Especially there arises a conflict an opposition towards the innate Buddha nature, that knowing of what is right and what is wrong, the, the innate instinct towards the highest peace, which we can call the, the Buddha nature. There is, because of selfishness, there arises a conflict towards this inherent tendency towards peacefulness. And because of that conflict, that opposition, there, there's dukkha, and one can't even sleep peacefully at night. If we look on the individual level, the personal level, and look around, we'll see these, that in many of our human friends, many of the friends sharing this planet, we see nervous disorders, we see psychoses, we see people who are crazy and insane, and people who go so far off track that they kill themselves. At first glance, it may not seem that neuroses, psychoses, and suicide, it may not, you may not see at first how this arises and comes from selfishness. But if you examine this very closely, we see that all this, this craziness in our human friends is coming out of selfishness. And this selfishness gets so out of control that there are even some people who go and kill themselves. Because of their selfishness, they they get caught up in all kinds of activities which are harmful and dangerous for both themselves and others. And sometimes this leads to suicide, directly or indirectly, quickly or slowly. Take a look at this. Think about this carefully and you'll see the truth of this matter. 
still considering other individuals, people other than ourselves, but now those that are very, very close to us, that is our family. We can see even within our family that there is conflict in opposition to each other. In Thai, this is called fighting each other. Even within a family, you have conflicts that end up in husband, wives, and children crying and biting each other. This always arises out of selfishness, out of people being more concerned with their own interests than that of others, viewing things in terms of the self. Or a little bit beyond the family, our neighbors, the people who share our community. We can't really be at peace with them because there's always some conflict, some, some competition over interests. We want some advantage out of them. And so selfishness is always, in some way, on some level, leading to conflict, either in the family as well as in our community. If this selfishness builds up and strengthens to where it really gets out of hand, then you'll find that there is conflict and opposition even between the government and parliament, the ruling body and the, and the people of a country where they can't even get along, where the interests of the government are opposed to the interests of the people. It can go, it can get this far out of hand, this selfishness. And then further, on an even larger scale, there is the divisions and conflicts into the left and the right, these various ex political extremes and people or nations choosing sides and then arguing and getting in competition in perpetual conflict between our side and the other side, between left and right. This, this condition is painfully obvious in the modern world where there are these constant conflicts between ideologies, but really it's not the ideology, it's the selfishness underlying the ideology. And so peace becomes a more elusive and hard to find thing because these different sides can't even speak in terms which the other side understands. They can't even talk together. And so peace becomes impossible in any real sense. Even in the United Nations, which was supposedly set up to bring about world peace, we have nothing but factionalism, people breaking up on, into the left and the right and arguing out of selfish interest. There's just all this, there's all this conflict arising out of selfishness and there's very little peace because of this.
even in mythology, whether Eastern mythology or Western mythology, whether Indian, Greek, or whatever. You even find the gods, the celestial beings, arguing with each other, getting into quarrels, disagreements, in fights. The gods even go to war, all because of the selfishness. Even in these, the gods of the mythological system, we find selfishness causing all sorts of problems, grief and pain. So whether we're talking about the celestial beings or human beings, whatever world or realm we look at, we find that there is selfishness at work preventing the whatever kind of being it is from being at peace so that that being, whether celestial or human, can't even sleep at night. Not only does that selfishness cause problems within, but it extends outward and leads to all kinds of conflicts, aggression, and wars with other beings. Even the rich, the rich people, the wealthy, who have all the physical things they need, all the material comforts that are necessary, and still there is selfishness making it difficult for them to, to truly be free and at, have peace of mind. And even the rich people, the selfishness extends beyond them, their own peace of mind and disturbs the peace of mind of others, afflicts others. So wherever we look, in this world or any other world, no matter how many worlds we, there are, we find selfishness causing all kinds of problems both within and without. And this makes it painfully obvious what a disgusting, foul and wicked enemy selfishness is for all. All selfishness without any exception comes from attaching to I in mind. Because of this, this clinging and clutching at things as I in mind, there arises selfishness. And as we explained, attachment comes from the craving born of ignorance. Now if this, there is none of this ignorant craving, and thus no attachment to I and mine, and no selfishness. Imagine what, what great peace there would be if all this attachment, selfishness, and stupid craving were done away with. Imagine the great coolness, peace, and tranquility which would then be there. Can you conceive of this great peace? This is what all this business is about, realizing that peace, getting out of this cycle uh, that conditions ignorant craving, <clears throat> attachment, and selfishness.
Now let's speak about the state of the extinction of dukkha. Let's talk about this state in which there is no more dukkha. In Buddhism, this is described as <coughs> coolness. It is the state of coolness. Coolness means the absence of heat. <coughs> all, the, all the hot fires have gone out. And without the, that heat, there is coolness. We have, we can talk about two kinds of coolness, and we would like you to be very careful about the difference between them. The first kind of coolness is called nibuti, or in the Thai pronunciation, niputi. Niputi is a coolness when there is no arising of the defilement. Maybe while watching the breathing going in and out, no defilement arises, no selfishness arises. Then the mind is cool. But this is a coolness which is only temporary because the, the, the roots of defilement have not totally been torn out. And so it is still possible that defilement, that selfishness, can arise again. So the first kind is temporary coolness, niputi. Then there is what we call nipana or nibbana. Nipana is when is also the coolness when there are no gilesa, no defilement, none of these hot fires burning the mind. There is no, none of the, the scalding of selfishness. But this nipana is permanent because in nipana there is no possibility that selfishness or the defilements will ever arise again. Niputi is a temporary cooling of defilement. Nibbana is a permanent where the defilements have been extinguished completely, utterly, with no remainder at all. Now the first kind of, of coolness, although it may be only temporary, is still very, very important because in that coolness there is no dukkha. And so this is a coolness to be understood, experienced, and developed until the time when there is nibbana, complete, utter coolness. The easiest way to make a distinction between these two kinds of coolness is to say that with niputi, it is a coolness that must be protected and maintained. The defilements are still lurking and hiding somewhere, ready to, to come out and burn the mind again. And so because of there's still the potential of defilement or selfishness arising, this state of nibuti, the temporary coolness, must be protected. It must be guarded against. 
or it must be guarded from the defilement. Nibbana, on the other hand, does not need to be protected. It is a permanent state in which all further possibility of defilement and selfishness has been destroyed. In this utter absolute coolness of Nibbana, it doesn't have to be supervised, watched over, protected, guarded, or anything, because the gilesa are completely done away with. There are these two kinds of coolness. Both are the absence of sukha. So they are something that each of us needs to be very, very interested in. What we've discussed so far is only is about the extinction or the state in which dukkha is extinguished. Next, we will talk about the way of extinguishing, of ending dukkha, the path. In Buddhism, in all the various teachings about how to extinguish dukkha, to simplify matters, we can talk about two basic ways, two categories of, of things that can be done to eliminate dukkha. The first way, the first category can be described as protection, and the second category as destruction. In the, the protection category, this is to maintain the state in which there is no defilement. When the mind is cool, when there is no dukkha in the mind, then this state of mind is to be protected by not allowing the, not allowing craving to enter into the stream of life, to keep life flowing in a way where no craving no ignorant desire enters into that life to cause dukkha. This is the first type of practice to protect the state of coolness from craving and dukkha. The, cat the types of practice which are destruction deal with dukkha that has somehow managed to arise. Because of a mistake or slip-up, there arises craving, attachment, and dukkha. So the, the practice is then to destroy that dukkha, to bring the mind back to a correct state, bring the mind back into a, a state of correctness, and this will destroy the dukkha. So there are these two basic approaches towards the practice of eliminating, of extinguishing dukkha. Now those, the practice which protects life from dukkha, the practice which guards against dukkha, in Buddhism is called Machima Patipata, the middle way of practice, or more commonly, the middle way. The middle way, this is how to protect 
against dukkha to be established in the middle way. This is also described as the, the noble path, the noble eightfold path, or more simply, Matimabhatipata, the middle way. This is what keeps dukkha from arising in life. Often the Buddha talks about the middle way, but as the way to eliminate problems, to prevent the arising of problems. But sometimes he also talks about samatha vipassana as the way of preventing problems, of preventing dukkha. Samatha means tranquility and vipassana is insight. So the so when there is tranquility and insight into life, this will also prevent the arising of dukkha. Sometimes the Buddha called it the middle way, and sometimes <coughs> tranquility, insight. Some of you who've studied some of the, the descriptions of Buddhism will be familiar with the fact that the the Noble Eightfold Path, or the Middle Way, is often described as sila, samati, panya, morality, or right behavior, concentration, and wisdom. The first two factors of the Noble Eightfold Path, right view and right intention, these are the wisdom component. Then there is right speech, right action or work, and right livelihood. This is the morality or sila component. And then there is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which is the concentration component. So there is morality, concentration, and wisdom in the Noble Eightfold Path. And then you may wonder how we can say that tranquility in insight is the same thing. Obviously, tranquility corresponds with the concentration, the samadhi aspect. The words samatha and samati are pretty much the same. And then insight and wisdom are pretty much the same. So if, so what about sin? What about morality? In samatha vipassana, insight, or tranquility insight, what has happened to morality? How can this be the same as the Noble Eightfold Path? To clear up this confusion, let us explain that whenever there is a, a correct intention, a dedication and commitment to the development and practice of tranquility insight, then at that time there is morality. That setting the mind upon a correct path, a correct way of, of living, this is morality. So if samatha vipassana is correct, then morality, right act, <coughs> right behavior, is, is automatically correct. And so it's fine to just say 
tranquility inside. But we can talk about the Noble Eightfold Path, the Middle Way, or morality, concentration, and wisdom, whichever we prefer. So now we've talked about the way of protecting against the arising of dukkha. Now we'll mention how to eliminate dukkha that has arisen, how to destroy dukkha once it has occurred. The way to do this is by using sati sampajanya, sati mindfulness and sampajanya, wisdom in action. Through the practice of mindfulness of breathing, sati, sampajanya, and wisdom, panya, have been developed. Through this practice, these are trained and made highly skillful so that they are able to deal with any arising of dukkha. If dukkha arises, then mindfulness will note that dukkha and bring the necessary wisdom to bear on that. And then that wisdom acting to eliminate dukkha is sampajanya, wisdom in action. Through the correct practice of mindfulness of breathing, wisdom will develop. Specifically, we're talking about the wisdom that all conditioned things are impermanent, that things are dukkha, unsatisfactory, and that all things are not self. When there is this wisdom regarding all phenomena, that they are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, that they are empty, void of any I, me, or mine. And finally, the wisdom that things are tatata. Tatata means suchness, thusness. Things are just thus, not any other way, not different than thus. Just the thusness of things to have developed this wisdom through the practice of anapanasati will mean that mindfulness, sati, can always draw on that wisdom and then apply that wisdom as sampajanya, wisdom in action, in order to destroy any dukkha that has arisen. If there is a situation in which dukkha arises, if the wisdom of tathata, suchness, just thus, just like thus, just this way, this is how it is. This wisdom of thusness, suchness, <coughs> such wiseness can be brought to the dukkha, then that dukkha will be destroyed. So using mindfulness and wisdom, all dukkha can be destroyed. This word suchness or thusness, da-ta-da, may sound to you like we're just kidding or joking, that it's kind of just playing with words. But if you examine it, if you really come to understand what is meant by suchness, then you will see that this is the highest possible understanding that there is. This is the highest wisdom 
the wisdom that see that sees thusness, suchness. It's instead of having a dualistic judgment and upon what is happening, upon any phenomena, any object of the senses. Instead, it's just seen as thusness, the way it is, seen that it couldn't be in any other way. And so our judgments, our dualistic opinions are worthless. With thusness, or da-ta-da, to just see the way a thing must be, the way it is and has to be, this is suchness. When there is the perception of suchness, when this wisdom is present, then there is no more seeing things as good or bad, right or wrong, happy or sad, positive or negative. So often we're, we're busy judging things with these dualistic categories, these pairs of opposites. If it's not good, it must be bad. If it's not right, it must be wrong. If it's not this, it must be that. And the mind is always caught up in this duality. But to see da-ta-da, thusness, is to be truly in the middle, to be in the middle, not caught up in the extremes of left and right, good, bad, right, wrong, positive, negative, getting, losing, living, or dying. Satata is just to see whatever it is as thus, the way it must be. This is the highest wisdom. And with this wisdom, nothing is ever a problem. Nothing no experience or phenomena will be dukkha. To make this very easy for you to remember, if you have some sufficient understanding of da-ta-da, of suchness, thusness, then you will not have to laugh or cry ever again. By understanding da-ta-da, we no longer will laugh about positivism or cry over what is negative. By seeing da-ta-da, we are free of laughing and crying. This is a very easy way for you to remember da-ta-da, suchness. The matter of destroying dukkha using mindfulness, and the wisdom of Dātata is quite clear. So now we'd like to go back and explain a little bit more about the way of preventing the arising of dukkha. This is a very detailed and long matter, and so we'll try and go into it a bit further. This way of preventing dukkha, once again, is the middle way, the Matimapatipata or the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the, remember this word, middle, it's to be in the middle, rather than caught in extremes of hot and cold, good and bad, right and wrong, positive or negative, pessimist or optimist. 
but to be in the middle, free of all those dualisms and extremes. This is the middle way. Another way of talking about the middle way is to say that it is neither wet nor, nor dry. It is neither wet nor dry. When we say wet or damp, this means that the middle way is not caught up in sexuality, chasing after sensual pleasures, indulging in sensual pleasures. This is one extreme, the, the wet extreme. Then the other extreme is to be dried up, to, to be burning hot and dried, brittle. This extreme is the extreme of needlessly inflicting pain and torment upon oneself by getting carried away with ascetic practices, by being too strict, by forcing oneself through, through things that are, are way too much and which inflict needless pain. This way is the, the dry way. So there is the one extreme of wetness and the extreme of dryness, and neither of them are right. Both of these extremes cause dukkha. Indulging in pleasures leads to dukkha, and indulging in pain also leads to dukkha. The right way, the Noble Eightfold Path, is in the middle, neither wet nor dry. But when we say wet and dry, we're not talking about the, the normal meanings of these words. When we mean wet, we mean that it's so wet, all this indulging in sexuality and sense pleasures, it's so wet that it's rotting and fermenting. This is the kind of wetness in which there is the stench of rot and decomposition. This is the one extreme. And that dryness we're talking about is not just to be dry in an ordinary sense, but the dryness of, of being burnt up, scorched, to be, it's so hot, so dry and brittle in that sense. So we could also say to be rotting is the one extreme of indulgence and pleasure, and to be burning is the extreme of indulgence of pain. The middle way is to be free of both of these. Now we'd like to talk about the word sama, or rightness, correctness, or right, correct. The middle way, the Noble Eightfold Path, is made up of various factors which are all described as right. Right view, right intention, right speech, and so forth. We have to be very careful, though, by what is meant by right. This rightness or correctness of the middle way is not a rightness that is based in logic. It's not something you arrive at by reasoning or by a philosophical um, system. What is correct is not correct according to speculations, opinions, or any of such things. 
When we say right or correct, it means correct in line with the law of nature. Right in terms of the law of nature. And what this means that there will be no dukkha. If it is right and correct, then there is no dukkha. This is the meaning of the middle way. It is right. It is correct. And this is the deepest meaning of these words, that there is no dukkha. Because that means that life is completely in line with the law of nature. When it is right, when the way is right, then it is leading towards Nibbana, towards absolute coolness. This means that there is Viraka, Nirota, and Viveka. If the way is right, it is heading towards this absolute coolness. And there is Viraka, the fading away of attachment. Attachment fades away and fades away. So there is less and less attaching to I and mind. There is Viveka, ultimate singleness, oneness, or unity, moving in this way. And there is Nirota, cessation, the ending of attachment, craving, and dukkha. This is the meaning of right, this being between all dualism and heading towards Nibbana. Now, to be in the middle, in the, the essence of, of the middle is voidness. The real middle is in voidness. And by voidness we mean void of I and mind. In voidness there are no egoistic thoughts, no egoistic feelings, perceptions, or anything. There is no sense of I or mine, me or myself. This is voidness. And when there is voidness, when the mind is void, then there are no, none of these extremes, none of these dualisms exist in the void. In the void there is no good or bad, no left or right, right or wrong. There is no positive or negative. And so in the void, it is impossible to get caught up in any of the dualisms in any of the extremes, such as pleasure and pain. There is no attachment to I and mind. So the essence of the middle is voidness, when the mind is absolutely free of any thoughts of I and mind, any sense of me or myself. And then there is no inside or outside there's no above or below, left or right, in front or behind. There's just the metal, the middle that is grounded in voidness. We'd like to take some more of your time in order to talk about the various factors of the middle way. There is the eightfold path. We'd like to talk about these factors in a little bit of detail. 
The first one is right view. Everyone has views and opinions of all different kinds. But the thing is to have right view. And so what, what do we mean by right view? Right view means to see the Four Noble Truths, the truth of dukkha, the truth of the cause of dukkha, the truth of the end of dukkha, and the truth of the path leading to the end of dukkha, which we have been talking about for the last two days. Seeing these Four Noble Truths is right view. Seeing the three characteristics of conditioned existence, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, anicca, dukkha, anatta. This is right view. Seeing sunyata, voidness, seeing the state of being void of I and mind, of any self or soul. Seeing datata, suchness. And finally seeing itapajayata, this is right view. This kind of seeing is right view. When there is the seeing of itapajayata, then there is the wisdom, the knowing of what to do so that dukkha is eliminated in accordance with the law of nature. This is right view because it's the view that will lead to the elimination of all dukkha. Another special name for right view is the dawn. Right view is the dawning of all, the dawn of all dhammas. This means that first there will be the dawn of right view and then all the other factors of the Noble Eightfold Path will follow. Because once there's the dawn, there is morning, noon, afternoon, and evening following one after the other. So first, the middle way begins with right view, and then the other factors will follow from that right view. The second factor is sama sankapa, right intention or right aim. This is to want wisely. It is correct want. Yesterday we talked a lot about ignorant or foolish desire, craving. And this is the counterpart to that. Right want is to want the elimination of dukkha, to want which want that which leads to the extinction of dukkha. Usually we just want the things that cause dukkha. Our desires are centered on beauty, deliciousness, various pleasures, and this will lead to dukkha. But wise want is not centered on things that cause dukkha, but is centered upon the way out of dukkha. So this right intention, the intention to be free of dukkha, to practice to be free of dukkha, this is the right intention that follows from right view. The next factor is sama waja, right speech. This is speech that is correct, both in the words spoken and the way of speaking. 
By correct, we mean speech that is not dishonest. There's no lying or falsity. It is speech that doesn't lead to separation, that doesn't make divisions between people. It is speech that is, isn't crude or coarse, unpleasant or harsh to hear. And it is speech which is not frivolous. It's speech that has a usefulness and purpose. It's not a waste of time. This is correct speech, the third factor. This means that right speech is true. But not only true, it is also pleasant to hear. And it is useful. Speech that is truthful, pleasant, and useful is speech that will be, will lead towards the elimination of dukkha, both for oneself and others. This right speech will not cause any kind of dukkha. Now be careful, just because something is true doesn't mean it's right speech. It might be true, but it might be unpleasant to hear. Or true and pleasant to hear, but it might not be useful. So it should be truthful, pleasant, and useful. Otherwise, it's not right speech. And it won't be of use. It won't be appropriate in the elimination and extinction of dukkha. The next factor is sama kamando, which is right conduct, right physical action. This means one's actions do not harm anyone, including oneself. It is physical activity, conduct, behavior that does not do any harm. This means that this act that our actions do not harm the bodies or persons of others or ourselves. It doesn't destroy the property and wealth of others. And it doesn't harm the loved ones, the, those that are loved by others. So these, this way of not harming in, in our physical conduct, this is the fourth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. It is to do one's duty correctly. When one performs one's duty, then there is no harm done to anyone. The next factor is Sama Atiwa, right, right livelihood. This means that our way of maintaining life the way we keep ourselves alive is correct. By correct here, this means that the, the means of livelihood is not rooted in defilement, that we're not supporting ourselves, maintaining life in defiled ways. So our, our, main, our means of earning a living, of feeding and clothing ourselves so that we remain alive, 
this is not under the slavery of defilement or we could say of selfishness. Next we come to Sama Vayama, right effort, right energy. This is essentially mental energy or effort to not just stay still or regress, to not just mark time or back up in one's practice to eliminate dukkha. So right effort is to put forth effort in preventing the arising of evil states of mind. That means states of mind which lead to dukkha. Don't let them arise. And to put forth effort to eliminate any of these evil states of mind that have arisen. Further, it is to, to put forth effort in developing useful, skillful states of mind which help in the practice of eliminating dukkha and to maintain and protect any skillful states of mind that have already arisen. This is Sama Vayama, the sixth factor. The next factor is Sama Sati, right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is Sati that is very quick, extremely rapid, so that it can be right there at every experience and situation of life. Every time there is sense experience, the eyes, when there is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or any sort of mental activity, mindfulness is right there. And mindfulness is quick enough to be there and also to bring wisdom to that situation or that experience through whichever sense door it arises. Then, bringing that wisdom, the wisdom of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, is able to prevent the arising of dukkha. So once again, by right, it means that it is useful in preventing dukkha. And so right mindfulness brings the right kind of knowledge to the experience. Mindfulness must be correct in this way also because if it went and brought some foolish knowledge to the situation, if mindfulness went and brought a stupid idea that would lead to reacting improperly to the situation, then there would be dukkha. So right mindfulness must be correct both in being very fast and in its ability to bring the right knowledge, the right wisdom, to that sense contact. The last factor is sama samati, right concentration. There are wrong there is wrong concentration also, so be careful to make sure that concentration is correct. Right concentration has three qualities to it. The first is purity. The correctly concentrated mind is 
free of all defilement. There is no greed, lust, anger, fear, hatred, worry, envy, and so forth, defiling the mind, the concentrated mind. Further, right concentration is, is very firmly established. There is great strength and power in this mind. All the mind's energy has been gathered together and is focused, which gives the mind great strength, and so it is well established in this strength and is very stable because of this. And the third factor is activeness or skillfulness. The, the concentrated mind is very active and skillful in performing any duty that needs to be done. It can do it quickly and with great skill and expertise. So right concentration is made up of the factors of purity, stability, and activity. Be careful that concentration is right concentration. Now when there is sama samati, right concentration, and it is directed on Nibbana, the utter extinction of all dukkha. Then we say that there is this right concentration backed up by the other seven factors, or it's called right concentration with seven supporters. These seven other factors are supporting right concentration and then right concentration now is focused on the destruction, the getting rid of all dukkha. And when this happens, when there is right samadhi with seven supporters, we call this, give it a special <clears throat> this is called ariya sama samati, with seven supports. Ariya sama samati means noble right concentration. And this is the highest concentration. That concentration which is firmly focused upon Nibbana. Now all eight of these factors can be summarized as living correctly, living rightly. This may seem like we're just kidding again. But really, all these eight things come down to living rightly. If one's life is correct, then the gilesa, the defilement, cannot arise. The mind will never again be, is not disturbed by anger, greed, fear, worry, jealousy, possessiveness, conflict, and all these ugly things. Further, any old habits any old defiled habits or tendencies, past familiarity with defiled states of mind, these will slowly fade away. We'll give up these old patterns of thought which are defiled, and they will slowly be abandoned. And then lastly, there is the understanding of datata, of thusness, this wisdom, this highest wisdom, is developed further and further. This is what living correctly accomplishes. 
the gilesa are not allowed to arise, the defilements, the old defiled patterns are let go of, and the understanding of datata, thusness, flourishes. As this happens, then life is correct and there is no dukkha. So, we end the talk on this note.